Great. Thanks to everyone for being here. We'll go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, I'd like to thank the conference departments and the tech and AV folks who I always drive crazy with my harebrained requests about how to run these things. Um, and I'd like to welcome those watching on C-SPAN uh, today. Um, to the extent anybody knows me in Washington, I have a reputation as a little bit of a hater. Uh, I've written my fair share of negative book reviews. Um, and so I had seen an interview uh, with former Secretary Miller about his proposals for cutting the defense budget pretty significantly and transforming American strategy. I found out that he had written a memoir. And so I thought to myself, it'll be a good thing if I read this memoir and then I reminded myself what reading former officials' memoirs is normally like. And I thought, oh, please don't subject me to this. And I, I never thought I would find myself gushing about uh, a former official, former government official's memoir, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to do some gushing here this afternoon. Um, the first warning that I may like this book appeared in the book's introduction. The author writes, quote, I'm not looking to gain the plaudits of a national security establishment that has spent the last two decades losing wars in the Middle East. I'm not looking for fame or fortune or a lucrative deal as a talking head on cable news. Well, I'll, I'll take one, though. That's if, right. <laughs> if anybody has an offer, I'm in. Oh, sorry, I Justin. haven't gotten to the blue part yet. <laughs> Back to you. Other than my family and a handful of friends, I don't give two figs, I'll use that word, about what anybody thinks of me. And I thought, this guy might be my kind of guy. And as I read on, I discovered that, by and large, um, he is. So one review that I think was critical of the book um, hit on an important truth that I think it's important to set our discussion this afternoon up with. Um, the author wrote that Miller had developed, quote, a profound disenchantment with the country's military and political leaders, a disillusionment he shared with a lot of soldiers thanks to the deceptions and errors embedded in the wars they fought. And as I talked to a variety of my friends who were veterans, um, right, left, and up and down, um, they really agreed with that and identified with that. So I think in some sense, uh, Secretary Miller speaks for you know, a broader cadre of people um, who fought the country's wars uh, over the last couple of decades. I'll give a brief introduction um, for Secretary Miller, and then he'll give some opening thoughts, sort of setting out his view of why the defense budget should be cut pretty dramatically and how to shape the strategy to that budget. And then we'll have kind of a rollicking, freewheeling discussion, I think, unless, uh, unless things go sideways on us. Um, Christopher C. Miller served as acting Secretary of Defense under uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. Prior to that, he performed the duties of the ASD for Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict, or SOLIC, as the kids call it. Um, he also previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations in Combating Terrorism. Before that, he worked on the NSC as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Counterterrorism and Transnational Threats. Uh, but he started uh, in this national security world as uh, under commission as an infantry officer in 1987 through ROTC. He began his career as an enlisted infantryman in the Army Reserve and also served in the D.C. National Guard as an MP. In Which is ironic. Well, it all comes full circle, I suppose. Um, in 93, he transferred to Special Forces and served in numerous command and staff positions within the 5th Special Forces Group Airborne. Um, he ultimately wound up in command of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne. Um, and participated in the initial combat operations in Afghanistan in 01 and Iraq in 03, in addition to a number of follow-on deployments as we uh, lived through to both theaters. 
but he has extensive interagency and joint special ops experience, some of which is redacted, I believe, in the book by uh, the US government. Um, he worked for over two years as a defense contractor providing clandestine special ops and intelligence expertise directly to the undersecretaries of defense for intelligence and policy. He has a BA in history from GW, Master of Arts degree in National Security Studies from the Naval War College, and is a graduate of the Naval College of Command and Staff and the Army War College. So with that windy introduction, I would like to turn things over to former Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller. That was windy, <laughs> and I think the funniest, so you kind of thought, you know, most military memoirs, the greatest ever written, they say, other than Thucydides, but that wasn't really a memoir, it was more an oral history uh, that was transcribed later. So you thought it was like Grant-like. Lee-like, you think? I, I will leave the comparisons <laughs> to you, I think. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Thanks for having me, Justin. Pleasure. It's good to be, you know, with a fellow Midwesterner, yeah. St. Louis. Uh, thank you all for coming today. The 22 people watching C-SPAN right now, thanks for tuning in or watching at, you know, 3.30 in the morning. My favorite interview for the book rollout, like I did 60 media hits. That's kind of, it's all about, like, you know the old days where you would go to a bookstore? I was like, this would be great. I get to go to all the great bookstores in America. They're like, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Like, there's, there's no return on investment. You sell, like, five books or nobody shows up. So everything's either online, you're doing Fox. I did every single thing from one end of the spectrum to the other because I like to think of myself, believe it or not, as a bipartisan national security subject matter expert. Uh, but my favorite media hit was C-SPAN Sunday morning, 0800. <laughs> I'm in New York City with my family. We went to, the, oh, we went to that Neil Diamond, uh, I forgot the name of it, great play. Got a little teary, but that's all right. So we're in New York City. I go find a quiet place, what I think is a quiet place because it's New York City, it's really loud. I go in the basement, I set up my stuff, you know, my, my camera and all this stuff, and uh, like I got this wired, it's great, and then I realized that I'm right by the uh, where all the workers come in, which it's eight o'clock. Guess what? It's shift change. So I'm on everybody. The door just keeps slamming, slamming, slamming. And I realized at 0800 in the morning on a Sunday, you get a very eclectic mix of people calling in. It was the funnest <laughs> one I did. I had somebody from Michigan that cursed at me for something I'd never even heard of. It was really great. So it's great to be back on C-SPAN. <laughs> it's great to see you all here today. Uh, well, we're going to talk about budget. Is that what we're going to talk about? Let's talk about the budget. Okay, well, opening comments, please. All right, I'll f well, first off, you triggered something. I'll go off script right at the start, which is not a good sign. You know, you brought up... Uh, at and in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, I was worried that, you know, all those that had served, but more importantly, those that had lost loved ones, would somehow, you know, feel like I was a sellout, right? And I did an informal survey. I would talk to veterans. I would talk to their families. I would talk to uh, those that had lost loved ones. I said, what do you think about winding the war down in Afghanistan? And I, you talk about sunk costs, and you talk about all of these things. You obviously didn't talk about that with the loved ones of those that had lost someone, and not a single person said it was a good idea to continue the war. And when I knew that we had that constituency, 
that had served there had sacrificed, and we like the 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 sacrifice of some of those that deployed over and over again. They were primarily special operators. They were Navy SEALs. They were Army Green Berets. And when I had, when I listened to them, not talked to them, listened to them, I knew that I could, in good conscience, support President Trump's efforts to wind down the war. And so I'm glad that you brought that up, Justin, just to highlight that. Uh, I think the end of the war uh, was absolutely tragic and was mishandled. I've said that publicly, and I'll say that to the day I die. I think it brought discredit on our country, and I probably gave uh, cause to our opponents to do some, uh, some stuff that we'll probably talk about. But to start off with, uh, I gotta tell you, we're gonna talk about budget. So I said, thinking like, okay, I gotta do 10 minutes, what do I do? My first experience with the Department of Defense budget I'm a captain, I've been in the Army about eight years. I was an Army Green Beret. Army Green Berets, I was a captain, go behind enemy lines, which we did in Afghanistan, I got to do that. It was like amazing, such an honor. It's a 12 person team, then it was 12 man team, now it's 12 person, which thank goodness. And um, you, have, you have two engineers that know how to build stuff and blow stuff up. You have two weapons experts that can basically take any weapon in the world and take it apart, put it back together, shoot it, train somebody. You have two medics. These guys are trained the equivalent. They are literally, if they can practice medicine overseas, they can't do it in the United States because they're not licensed. That's how well trained they are. Incredible. <laughs> I have, I won't go down that story. Uh, so you have them, then you have two uh, communication, radio men, communication experts, and then you have two people that are intelligence and operations, kind of older, and then you have two officers. So that's your 12-person team. You go behind enemy lines, you link up with an opposition group that's resisting the, the government, and you train them, lead them, advise them, and they overthrow the government just like we did in 2001. So, but this, this is 19, this isn't 2001. I got to do it in 2001. It's the only first time we'd ever done, that's called unconventional warfare where you go behind enemy lines. I was like, it had never been done. We were established, Army Green Berets were established after World War II. Remember the French Maquis and uh, you know the resistance, the French resistance? Well, from that, we decided that we needed to have, we, the United States, needed to have a force that could go behind enemy lines when the Soviets swept into East, Western Europe. We would stay behind and we would link up with uh, friendly elements and then we'd just tear apart their supply lines and their command and control. We had never done that until 2001 when I was really just absolutely blessed to be part of the uh, effort uh, to go into Afghanistan that overthrew the Taliban. But this is, so that's 2001. This is 1997. I've just completed my time as a team leader, Special Forces Green Beret team leader. It's like the quintessential best job in the world, right? And you never want to leave it. My boss said, hey, you need to become the budget officer. I was like, excuse me? He goes, you need to learn about the enterprise. You need, you've done the team leader thing. You need to like, learn bigger picture. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Finally, he's like, you're not hearing me. You're becoming the budget officer. Now, the irony of this, I just have to share with you, is beyond 
understanding that I can't even balance my own checkbook, and now I've got like a million and a half budget. I take this job really, really seriously. And I, at the end of the fiscal year, on September 30th, I went in to the, the big boss. I said, how did I do on the budget? And he goes, gave me a nickel. He goes, I owe you, you, uh, you didn't, you, you know, you didn't use all your $1.5 million. I got within a nickel. I was like, yes, I've done it. I've accomplished something really meaningful. I said, how did the, um, there are three battalions. I'm in uh, third battalion. I said, how did first and second battalion do? They're like, oh man, they overspent. Second battalion overspent their budget by a million and a half. Uh, first battalion overspent it by $2 million. So I was like, I kind of giggle into myself, like, man, they're going to get in a lot of trouble. So they're my buddies. I call my buddies. I'm like, how's it going? They're like, what do you mean? I said, you overspent your budget by $2 million. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I did. I did it on purpose. I'm like, are you going to get in trouble? He goes, no, they just fill it back up. I was like, well, who's the sucker now? I mean, I closed the books perfectly. Next year, learning organism. Army prides itself in, you know, lessons learned. Next year, we go to this, the National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California. This is the cold, end of the Cold War. Well, the Cold War's been over, but this is the marquee experience. There's no war going on. This is what your whole report card gets graded on. We're going forward with our entire battalion, 400, 500 people. And we go to this place called the Nevada Test Site, which is like a place of unbelievable renown from the uh, Cold War, right? Now, I'm not revealing classified information because I have never been read onto the program, but they built a nuclear-powered plane out there. The problem was when they realized, somebody goes, well, how are we going to protect the pilot? And they said, well, we'll put lead shielding in here. They're like, it became like, you know, a 40-ton plane. Physically could fly, but the mechanics didn't work. They also did a nuclear-powered a rocket out there, which I'm not giving up national security secrets because I was never read on to any of this, but when you're at this huge monolithic launch pad where they have spray-painted yellow and orange places not to go because it's still radioactive, I deduced that what they were doing was building some sort of nuclear power. So I just want to be clear that I have no knowledge, I've never been read on, but I think that that's what they were doing. So I'm there, and usually you stay in tents, really austere living. It's the end of the Cold War. The Nevada test site is not, they're not doing testing anymore. They're not getting any business. They had built an entire small downtown with, like, basically holiday inns everywhere that are empty. And I said, what are those? They're like 450 rooms. They're yours for $5 a day per person. I'm thinking back to my budget from the last year. I said, we're in. So every single person on that deployment got to live in their own room at the Holiday Inn. And when we closed the books out, I left just before. And I'm going to give a name. Paul Chamberlain. He's a three-star general. He's the budget officer for the Army right now. Great guy. He replaced me. I said, Paul, it's going to get a little sporty towards the end of the fiscal year. Don't worry about it. They're going to it's not going to blame it all on me. I overspent by $3 million. And guess what happened to me? 
I got promoted. <laughs> so this is my experience. This is my first experience with defense programming and budgeting. And I think, I look out here, I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. You know, and then 2001 happened and, and we're at war. So at that, at that time, budget kind of goes out the window a little. You want to give your fighting forces the absolute best material and equipment that they can get. So let, let's just set that aside. Well, right now, you all know uh, last year's budget came in at 858 billion. I always say million, and then I'm like, no, B billion, 858 billion. We came in at last year. I believe if you read, that's commonly regarded as the largest peacetime budget in the history of the United States. Justin, is that right? Come on, you know this stuff, uh, dude. I'm making this up. Peacetime. Yeah, it's cl it's close to the top. Early Cold War would have been in real terms commensurate. So you get the idea. That's why I love, I love being up here with him. He, kn he knows this stuff. Uh, I must have been reading Politico or something, and they're not like experts like Cato. You know what I'm saying? So both wars are over, and we're spending more money than we ever have before. And we've created, and I'll just say it, because we're going to go there, we've created this bogeyman of, like, we are not prepared for competition, meaning China, let's just throw it out there. I, was it, who said uh, a, a conservative is a liberal that's been mugged? Wasn't that like Irving Crystal? Or was it Irving Crystal is one of those, yeah. Buchan, yeah, yeah, one of those. This is when I realized, because I'd always been firmly committed to our national defense, and I didn't really buy into that whole military industrial complex. I just learned the other day, McCain actually stole my thing because I've changed it. I, did, I, did I put it in the book? I'm like, it's the, it's MAME C, Military Academic Industrial Congressional Entertainment <laughs> Complex. Yeah. So I came, you think that works? It doesn't roll right it, off the tongue. MAME C? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Let's go with it. That doesn't work. <laughs> but I was really skeptical of this whole like military industrial complex thing, McCain military industrial congressional complex, but there's really something to it. And I used to get, in closing, I used to get really, really angry. There are some, I'm glad you didn't do, like I said something so insanely ridiculous one time. Uh, I thought it was off the record, but you learn in DC, nothing's off the record. Uh, where I, I used to get really, really angry with the defense primes. There are five defense, major defense contractors right now. And I actually thought more about it, and I kind of had this epiphany. They're doing exactly what the incentive structure, they have maximized to the nth degree, so I cannot be angry at the defense primes. They're doing exactly what they're incentivized to do. The thing is, you know, that worked. Who remembers the, uh, the dog on Last Supper, the 1993, you know, Cold War's over, uh, Les Aspen calls in, I think at the time there were 20 defense primes, calls them in and says, hey, when this night's over, there are going to be five of you. Figure it out. Because we can no longer afford to be spending so much in defense. And it was the, it was the uh, peace dividend in many ways. So 
we had Goldwater Nichols, we've reorganized our national security, what was that, probably 40, 50 years ago, we're doing the exact same thing still. And what upsets me now is we're in a fundamentally different place technologically, geostrategically, the nature, of, the nature of war never changes. That's always fear, hatred, loathing. I forgot Clausewitz, I forgot. Uh, but the, tr the, nat the nature of war never changes, but we are transforming how we wage war. And you all know it. It's like we got microelectronics now, smaller, uh, and it's just much more lethal out there. So here's my issue right now with what we got going on, is we need a reverse uh, last Supper. We need to break up, we need, we don't need to break them up, that's not the right answer because politically and economically it's probably impossible. The, the things that are happening with small industry and small startups is remarkable, but they can't get through the door right now because of the incentive structure. So my thing is we need to embrace the transformative effect of really, really smart people and they're not all in D.C., you know, a lot of them are out in St. Louis, Boise, you pick it, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So that's kind of where I'm going. The thing with the book is everybody, so the, when you do these press things, only like four people actually read the book, thanks. And you can tell within a nanosecond because they get a publicity sheet and one of the things is cut the defense budget in half. And they'll go right there because they've got to get their sound bite right for the for the show that they're on or the podcast. And I'm like, actually, the argument's a little bit more nuanced than that, which you picked up on, which is really what I'm talking about. Is not let's just not let's just cut the budget by half. No, let's transform the way we think about national security and defense, and let's come up with a new strategic approach. You're a strategist, and you know there are only like four really good strategists in America. Who do you think the best strategists are? Justin, oh, over I, to you, come it, on. No, if I name come anyone, on. it will slight all the other ones, so I'll, I'll, I'll renege on that uh, question entirely. There's some good ones out there, not many in D.C. I know, why is that? Well, that's a whole other forum. All right. So that's the thesis of my book. Really, the, the thesis is accountability as well. I get so upset, like we have lost, we have lost two wars, and people still get promoted. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm like a quasi wannabe historian, but if you're a military person, you read a lot, and you read about Marshall, and of course the defining event of the United States military, well, Civil War and World War II, and Marshall would be like keeping scorecard, okay, I've got six, well, they probably, I think he had like 68 generals. Now we have how many, like 500? They had a 16 million person military, by the way. And, you know, Marshall had everybody's name on the list. He's like, not working, fire him. <laughs> like, failed in crossing, crossing the Salerno or whatever. That river was a Rapidian, or I pronounced it wrong. It'll be great. That'll be meme-worthy, you know. Like, you pronounce, oh, the guy doesn't know how to pronounce the river. But, you know, and there was accountability, right? And the thing that has really frustrated me, and you brought it up, is the fact that we have not drawn on these experiences. I was trained in it was embedded in me about after action reviews and lessons learned. Always try to improve your performance. I, people out here are nodding their head going, remember those after action reviews? It was, it, it was Maoist self-criticism <laughs> sessions, wasn't it? It, it was brutal. Yeah. But man, 
you opened up a way to talk about things without risk of hurting anybody's feelings because it was organized that way. And I haven't seen it yet. We still don't have lessons learned from the Iraq war. We still don't have Afghanistan. They've been done. I'm telling you they've been done because I got interviewed for them. So why that, that disgusts me that they're still being withheld because we have to give the next generation the tools. I cannot believe we did it again. I was trained by Vietnam vets. They're like, we're never gonna do this again. I was like, no, we're not doing it again. And then we did it again. We did it again. We, we walked away. And so that's kind of the thesis of the book. But you wanna talk budget, man. Let's talk budget. Oh, yeah, let's talk um, budget. So I think one, you know, you look, and this is a short book, it's a memoir, it's very readable if I haven't mentioned that already. Um, but you know, you say 40 to 50%, it takes us back to sort of pre 9-11 numbers, so it's not, you know, uh, just sort of rolling up the entire military and becoming Costa Rica overnight. And the natural response to that is to say, well, you just pull this 40, 50% out of thin air. And I think as a practical matter, if you had political leadership that said we want to cut the budget dramatically, they would go to PPB&E or wherever in the Pentagon and say, hey guys, we're cutting the budget by X, figure it out. There's no one person who's gonna draw every dot and tittle of the org chart to say we've cut it by, so I, I think it's like the obvious criticism is superficially persuasive, but in practical yeah, matter, but I, had to be, I had to be provocative to sell books, oh, that's, man. You did it, you did, did it, you're loud? here. No. But so let's talk a little bit about um, service shares, right? Okay. So we have more or less fixed service shares over time, which tells since us time immemor since, since time immemorial. Since the establishment of the Department of Defense, my friend. So we are you know, gonna run a new look defense posture in Europe, um, and after that, the service shares stay the same. We're gonna run a big counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan and Iraq. Somehow, miraculously, in the Air Force and the Navy come out okay in this. And a lot of people would say this is a pathology of Goldwater Nichols, that jointness in fighting wars is great, but jointness in budgeting for wars is actually bad because you get this log-rolled coalition where the services and the combatant commands, which is another bugbear of yours, I think it's fair to say, um, don't fight over budgetary shares. So do you have a story where, th is that a part of the problem in your view, and how do we undo that problem? Well, that, that's like a huge question about transformation and innovation. Uh, but yeah, number one, the, the geographic combatant commanders, there are five of them, the world split up into five regions, was brilliant when Colin Powell and Weinberger and all those invented or put that structure in place, because we were in an interwar period, right? It was like nothing much is going on. And, you know, let's be honest. Uh, and, it, and so it was the right construct at the time. And when was Goldwater Nichols? 87, 88, 87. Uh, so I thought they were really, and that, well, that's exactly what we need right now. We need somebody thinking strategically. Your point about, like, all right, how do you cut the budget? So there's two ways capabilities based or salami slice. Capabilities basis, you come up with a new strategy and you go, well, clearly we don't need that many, you know, army divisions because we're going to be a maritime strategy, which I think there's a lot to that. So get rid of some army forces, but it never happens. So I'm a strict proponent of uh, the salami slice. And everybody laughs at me and yells at me when I say that. You just have to give everybody their bogey. Because who was it? Was Andy Grove or somebody? somebody, uh, some business person said, there's always 15% in every single organization <laughs> you can get rid of. So that forces that, uh, that drawdown. But the point is, 
I'm like, we have so much overhead right now in our military. And it just got, I'm good with overhead and kludging everything up when it's in the best interests to slow down. Because the military, they, like, we got a mission, we go. It's good to have civilian oversight to slow them down otherwise, because every problem, if you have a hammer, every problem's a nail, whatever that is. We have so much overhead right now with the military. I'm like, in World War II, how many major commands do we have? Two, Europe, Pacific, East, West. I'm like, why can't we go back to something like that, which then will clean up your strategic stuff? Because right now you have five four-star generals all compete. I'll give you an example. We, do you, how many aircraft carrier can we put to sea at any one time? We have 12 of them. Usually two, you can surge to three. Oh no, we can go to five. If you go to five aircraft carriers at one time, you will destroy the crewing. You will have a nightmare in your personnel process because people, we don't have enough people to man that many carriers and you'll absolutely mess up your uh, maintenance schedule to an unbelievable degree. So usually we, we put two out at a time you can surge to three. Those two aircraft carriers are like, those four-star generals and admirals, they fight over those things as if it's like the last yeah. piece of food. So uh, <laughs> if you have two commands, that's, that I think it will just rationalize how we think about the world as opposed to five fiefdoms or uh, you know, pro-councils, there was a book about that. <laughs> You know, so that, that's, that's the point I was trying to make. But back to your, your point about, like, okay, geez, it's everybody gets the same percentage of the budget. Right. What, what do you think trade space is? About 2.5%? Like, Air Force is up a little right now, and Army's down. Like, oh, Ar I should go consult for the Army because I can <laughs> solve their problem, but they're not, I'm not on their uh, Christmas card list right now. Yeah. So you mentioned also the way we wage war, which is like, you know, used by a lot of people differently than you use it. Um, but you have kind of a theory of the case, or maybe a theory of the world, that you get into in the book that talks a little bit about, it's not just changing the way we wage wars. The implication is war has changed, and therefore the way that we wage war should recognize and conform to the way that technology in the world has changed. So do you want to do a little you, riff on? No, you got it's it. In the you book, keep going but, with you know, that. No, no, that no. Was but perfect. put some meat on the bones, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you know how you in in warfare you go from offense to defense as being the dominant power. Like you think about World War One, trench warfare, defense is strongest. You know, generation was destroyed trying to salt those trenches. We got out of that with Blitzkrieg. Uh, in World War II where it became maneuver, they started using radios, artillery, aircraft, etc. So they reestablished mobility, offensive was the key, uh, which kind of continued for quite a while. We mastered it, the United States way of war has absolutely mastered maneuver warfare, which is like fires, precision, move to put your enemy, they call it on the horns of a dilemma, you know, so they never know what's going to happen. My supposition right now is that we are in the midst of a, uh, of a, not transformation, but we're changing back to the power of the defense. What we're seeing, and you see it in Ukraine right now, right? Like if you're flying a f manned aircraft over Ukraine right now, you better be at 25,000 feet because you're gonna get 
you're not going to be effective down low because of the prevalence of shoulder-launched, uh, I'm sorry, man pads, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, which are the benefit of, you know, microelectronics and circuitry. You also see, what have we seen in Ukraine? Like all those tanks, you remember that line of tanks? And just small little hunter-killer teams just went zipping around and pick up trucks with, with man portable. Well, they're not just man. I say that, you know, uh, generically because there were a lot of women out there on hunter-killer teams that would then sneak up, maneuver around, and kill tanks. So what we're seeing right now is a reversion back to the power of the defense. So, so yeah, go ahead. But is that a function of technology and warfare changing or the unique pathologies of the Russian military declining for reasons that remain unclear to me to fight with combined arms in the opening phase of the war? If I was an AH-64 Apache helicopter pilot, which is one of, that's our, that's a great attack helicopter for killing tanks. Oh, the last time we did a major, the deep attack was the end-all, be-all of the Cold War. We built these incredible weapons. You talked about uh, op design of forces. Remember, we came out of Vietnam, and there were these genius people, Depew, and a whole bunch of people came up with this thing called Airland Battle Doctrine, and they said, we're going to come up with a way to fight, and then you figure out the weapon systems. You know what we're doing right now? You know what the Army's strategy is right now? We have 24 key uh, procurement programs. That's not a strategy. That's an acquisition approach, yeah. right? I mean, you can argue with me, and Christine Warmoth, Secretary Warmoth, can come yell at me, and I wish she would, but she doesn't call me on this, and nor does uh, Chief of Staff of the Army McConville. But the point I'm trying to make on that is, you know, that's the way you should construct your forces, not by we want a lot of these and then make your strategy match it. But the point I was trying to make, which you, you triggered me off into my uh, Depew transformation of warfare thing, uh, where was I going with it? Uh, Russian tank column that got picked yeah. off. Oh, age 64. So, so yeah. age 64 was the whole idea was the deep strike into the Russian second echelon with these Apaches. We did it one night in Iraq. Anybody there for that that night? We got our butts handed to us. And you know how we got our butts handed to us? Dudes on cell phones were calling up because we're going up the river valley. They're just calling forward. They're like, hey, huge flight of helicopters. And everybody with their AK-47 just came out in their porch and just started shooting towards them. We, we lost three or four helicopters that night. I think only one helicopter came back undamaged. That's the example I'm trying to give. If I, I got you like, oh, the Russians stink. Yeah, obviously. Well, let's talk about intel. Like, oh my gosh, the Russians are 10 feet tall. I mean, holy cow, they got stomped. I mean, back to, all right, back to China. Yeah. Well, we're not going back to China. Let's we're go going to China, China because I wonder if we're doing the same thing with the Chinese, elevating them into this like 10 foot tall enemy that we had done for the Russians. Mm -hmm. The point though is uh, aerial assault is no longer effective. Uh, large scale maneuvering with large tanks that can be seen by even rudimentary uh, optics and radars can be destroyed r very easily. Mm -hmm. So my thing is irregular warfare. 
My thing is, like, particularly when we're dealing with a totalitarian regime, an authoritarian regime, is cyber, psychological operations, information operations, uh, irregular, uh, unconventional warfare, the populations that are disgruntled, getting them riled up. Those are the tools, I think, and, and, uh, and unmanned is the way to go. So that's what I'm trying to say with the changing nature, transformation of warfare. I've been bogarting the uh, questions here, so I will uh, dem democratize this a little bit with, we have a microphone that'll go around a little bit. Um, if the microphone comes to you, please uh, identify yourself, ask a terse question. Um, and I'll be quick. And we'll get I in and out. I know. So I won't know, be man. Quick. Like, we got to shark tank this. You can, so got to be quicker. I know. Shark tank is, oh, yeah. Um, it, you can also ask questions online, either at the bottom of the website on which you're watching or using the hashtag CatoFP. Um, let's start off with, on a light note, from Laura, um, who asks, somehow via the internet, where did Mr. Miller buy his socks? Laughing emoji. So, I was at Sierra Space today. I went into the belly of the beast. Uh, it's a huge trade show for the military. I think these are Air Force socks, so I was like, <laughs> I might as well. Like, hey, unconventional warfare, uh, special forces are all about, like, building rapport sure. with the host nation. So I was like, I got to go in there with something that I can say, I'm one of you. This is your own information yeah. op right here. Yeah, this, say, is, Guys, this is yeah. a very rudimentary information <laughs> operation. Yeah, it's air, yeah. There it is. Let's bring it to the meat space here. Who do we have uh, back there? No, right, I don't see, right there. Um, uh -oh, there's a microphone that can go. Oh, you have one already. Look at can me. Can you hear me? I'm Andrew Thornburg with the Epic Times. I actually wanted to connect two of the points you had, one about sort of evolving the doctrine past maneuver warfare, and the other about the question of is intelligence sort of magnifying the China threat larger than it should be? You know, if we can't rely necessarily right now on intelligence about what the threats facing us are, what the next war ought to look like or is going to look like, how can we meaningfully adapt our doctrine uh, oh to address God. this threat? That's it. Like, I did not, is that your whole question? Or <laughs> That's you, it. You're a reporter, so you have a second part, so go ahead. That's it. Uh, thanks. Uh, I didn't set this one up uh, because, you know, if you're a business person and you're in an unpredictable business climate, what do you do? You hedge. You don't put any bet too big on any one thing. And that's exactly what I'm talking about is hedge. We can't go all in on any one thing. We need to have, we need to have a wide range of capabilities. But here's the nuance I'm getting at. Instead of having a million people on active duty right now uh, to fight a huge war is the time-space continuum is different now. We used to always have this thing like fight tonight. If you were in Korea, who did a tour in Korea? Got to be ready to fight tonight. And then if you're in the Folda Gap, you got to be ready to fight tonight. We don't need to be ready to fight tonight because our opposition is so far away and we are so blessed with these two beautiful oceans. So, you know, we have the ability to move more of our capabilities into the National Guard which I think reinforces the American ideal of the citizen soldier. Right. I'm just telling you straight up. Yeah. I'm over the professional military. Let's have a small professional military, small professional yeah. military. I love it. Ultra well trained, exceptionally equipped. Now they need to be ready to fight tonight. We know how to do that. But then we had this huge iron mountain sitting in towns and cities all across America that are your neighbors 
They're not at like five major bases in the United States, cloistered in the South primarily, where you don't know who serves you. I know a lot, I know you guys do, but a lot of people are disconnected from those that serve them. And I think that's really, really hazardous to our republic. So that's my point with how do you hedge? You still maintain capabilities, but those that you don't need for 60 to 90 days, you, out, you push those out into the National Guard. They're one weekend a month, two weeks during the year type folks. Push it out there and then just have this very high-tech force. Marines, uh, the same old crew, but there are less of them. They can get in if there's an in extremist situation and fight it out, stabilize the force while we bring the Iron Mountain in to take care of business. Did that answer your question, sir? Hedge. Let's see, right back there in the purple shirt. Did you did you put, like, did you like stage all these questions? Oh, it's coming in hot. What? It's, it's, no, I'm joking. Well, th this one won't help. I'm Josh Shervinson. I'm a senior non-resident fellow at Cato as well as an associate professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, two points. First, thank you for mentioning Depew. Whenever we talk about active defense in the airland battle, it's an awesome day. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for remembering. No, no, no. Because no, it's no. important. Totally. And Don Starr, you for that matter. Uh, I met I met him. He was, it was bucket list stuff when I was younger. Well, Amazing that, guy. To be talked about offline, no doubt. <laughs> uh, my question, though, when we talk about strategy, we talk about ends, tools, and techniques. Mm -hmm. We talked about tools and techniques today. I, I'd like to push you a little bit on the objectives, on the ends. So you talked about going to two COCOMs, perhaps as a way of redu seemingly to reduce American obligations or commitments in the world as part of your change the way in which we allocate resources, mm -hmm. practice warfare, also a little bit about changing the ends to which we seek in foreign policy, the objectives of American foreign policy. Could you talk about kind of the objective side of this equation? This is why I hate coming to Cato, because <laughs> you get really good questions. I just like the superficial ones that they read off of the <laughs> doggone publicity sheet. And I'm like, ah, uh, because ends, ways, and means, you know, is and I've done so much with that, and I still, kind of get hit and miss on it. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I think it really is, because ultimately we're talking about grand strategy, right? And you know that's where I was a fervent internationalist growing up. That's why I was like the, the Irving Crystal line. I was like, we gotta be out there. And then you know fighting these two wars, doing a lot of other stuff out there, and realizing that oftentimes uh, our presence was uh, was reducing our security. And that's not some like apologetic thing. I just, back to our hedging question, right now where the world is unstable and there's so much stuff going on, China's rising. You know, we heard about that about Japan in 1980. Remember that one? Like, oh my gosh. Do you remember, like, I loved watching the, you know, we only had three news channels then and the, every night there'd be a bunch of auto workers in Detroit like smashing a Nissan, you know? Uh, and because the ja Japanese were going to overtake us um, and because we were a falling power. Uh, the point is, I believe from the grand strategy perspective right now, where everything is unstable, there's so much going on in the world economically, politically, geostrategically, let's just come home for a bit. Let's just come home for a bit. Now, I could become a fervent internationalist tomorrow 
That's what I get upset about, frankly, with a lot of the strategic discussions is like you have to be one school. Like you're either this or that. Well, if you're a true strategist, you're looking at the world situation, what your ends, ends ways means are. My thing right now is I think we have an opportunity to come home, re rethink, retool, rearm, reinvest, rethink. Did I already say rethink? I think so. I said it twice? It's all right. We can look at the tape after. Let it roll. Um, and during this kind of, how do you pronounce it? Is it interregnum? Yeah. Is it, I, or I've been saying it wrong. No, I always read yeah. stuff it's and then, then I say something yeah. and my wife's like, that's not how you pronounce it. I'm like, I've never heard it pronounced. Okay, so I'm always embarrassed when I interregnum. interregnum. That's during the interregnum, let's go ahead and think about things a little differently and, and, and transform across the board. I think we need to transform our government writ large. Uh, not just defense, but I had to keep it within the yeah. realm of here. So that's my point is we need to take a neo-isolationist stand right now and, and reduce our commitments overseas. I think we were strategically overextended. Bring it home, think about this, and the American people ha ultimately have a vote too. And I think the American people right now, it seems to be we're getting in this weird place, we're getting back to like 1930s, you know, where a lot of people agree that it's time to focus inward for a bit and get our libraries back up to speed. You guys have nice libraries Thank here, you. so you guys uh, you know, work on some education, retool our economy, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea there implicitly, oh, let's, let's, no, no, no. If you say it's time to come home, the interregnum retool is that there's no 10 foot tall adversary at the gates that we need to be preparing tonight, as it were, to fight. That your view is that we have a cushion, a window to do that retooling. My, my belief is that authoritarian, totalitarian governments fear one thing, popular discontent and popular uprising. And when we present what leadership there needs is they need a bogeyman, they need an enemy, a common enemy that they can use to control their population, say this is why you, we need to stay in power because they, the British, the French, the Americans are threatening our way of life. Right. So my point is the thing that they fear most are, is not fleets of aircraft carriers, tanks, expeditionary logistics. They fear information. And that's one of the key components of regular warfare is information warfare. Now, you know, you, we can talk about misinformation and disinformation all day long, but I actually kind of believe old school like Voice of America and I'll just tell the truth and it, it'll work through it because that so that's what I'm trying to say when I say neo-isolationist I also the key point I make in the book which is nuance that you know clearly got lost is we do need to maintain engagement overseas we need to have sensors overseas we need to have our intelligence professionals overseas many more of them we need to have small special operations elements overseas they're sensors they're picking up like, wow, some, some crazy stuff's about to happen in Malaysia. We've got a huge Chinese fishing fleet coming down. The Malaysians are getting a little wobbly, thinking they're going to go ahead. And, you know, and then they can call forward capabilities, discrete capabilities from the United States. So we don't need to be forward deployed, is my point. We can, bring, we can pull those in if we have a good sensor grid out there. Good. We've got a couple questions online. We'll go to um, I'm one. just running out the clock. Man. We're, we're running out the clock. That's fine. One from Anonymous about auditing the Pentagon. Yeah, man, I'm and all in. And another, well, there's the answer to that. Um, and another from Frank Tedeschi, 
who asked a couple questions about concentration of defense contractors. You mentioned the Last Supper, um, leveling the playing field for startups, smaller and mid-sized companies that get crushed by the big guys. What about this big guys versus little guys dilemma? Um, like, should, shouldn't we expect the Department of Defense to be audited? I mean, come on. Is that asking too much? Apparently so. It, so I was extremely fortunate to work with a brilliant civil servant. David Norquist was the Deputy Secretary of Defense. He was committed, and his brother, of course, is the tax guy, I forgot what he said, but I know David. And you know, he was committed to getting a clean, they call it a clean audit out of the Department of Defense. He actually put the work into it. We had to spend some money to get you know, the correct tools in there. It can be done. Why, why shouldn't it be done? It's your money. It's, five, it's $858 billion a year. I think you should know where your money's going. I just call me crazy. And then, then back to our original comment. If we decide, like, well, we know, now we know where it all is going, and clearly we need more, I'm, I'm open for the discussion at that point. Uh, so why, why can't we do audibility? This administration has failed. It's completely reversed our efforts to get a uh, clean audit of the, of the uh, Department of Defense. The second question was, you know, John McCain tried to, there's a school of thought the only way that you can transform the Department of Defense is through procurement and acquisition. I think there are other ways, but I think it's a huge part of it. And you know, you heard me rant earlier about how these small innovative companies, many of you have friends, sons, daughters working in these that are just like doing incredible work, but they can't get a leg up and they can't get in the door. Because if you're, if you're responsible for a large contract, I'm the contracting officer, right? Like, right now the incentive, if, it, if this whole thing goes wrong, guess what happens? I, you're not gonna get fired, you're working for the government for <laughs> heaven's sakes, but let's be honest, like, you're gonna get fired, you're gonna end up in jail. No, you're really not. Uh, but you're not going to have opportunities, we'll just put it that way. So, you're absolutely gonna go to a prime where you know like, you never get fired. When your boss comes in and says, wow, that contract went over uh, 120% over, you're like, I was working with, I'm not going to give a name because somebody will run me over with a black SUV when I walk out of here. One of the major primes, you're never going to get in trouble for that. But if you decide to take a flyer and go with a smaller company that's innovative but maybe doesn't scale correctly, you get in a lot of trouble. So we, McCain was right, which was trying to change the incentive structure for our contracting officers. There's some efforts out there to do that, but the primes are gonna fight to the death, rightfully so. Back to the, I'm yeah. not bad-mouthing yeah. them, that's the incentive structure. So I think there's, there's ways to incentivize smaller businesses, tech startups that normally wouldn't work with the government that kind of want to, but they're like, why, why, I don't have the resources. It seems impossible. It does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any other, let me go to, all right, the gentleman with the microphone right here. It should be on. You can just go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry. I, I have a two-pronged question. The first part is that we outsourced almost everything. Intelligence, foreign service, uh, ethics even. Now, right now, we are, we are out, and military is also outsourced. My question is that when you outsource your military, you need an enemy to use that military for. We, we remember a lot of times when Mar Margaret Albright was saying, what do you have this big army for? And 
Do we need enemy outside? And if we fail to find, the, find them outside, there is, is there a possibility that that same uh, complex turned against us? This is the first prong of my question. Well, I agree, with, I agree with you 110%. So, right, I mean, okay. that's, that's okay. something. Next question. No, I mean, I, th I think your point is really, really valid that we should not outsource our national security. They're inherently governmental functions, and outsourcing intelligence and operations should be under the control of the federal government, and it, they're not right now. So okay. you're right. The second part is that when did we wage a war without exaggerating the size of the enemy. I remember very well, I'm Arab, when I was reading about Iraq, the fourth army in the world, the biggest tanks, the biggest everything, those people are gonna kill us, they are gonna come here and kill us. And then all of a sudden we found out that it's a fake army, there was no army there at all. So oh, over, oh, 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 yeah, I, I think we got so, the mics uh, on the we exaggerated, the, our we exaggerated yeah. the army. Yeah. Is yes, our intelligence giving us the wrong information about our enemies? Thank you. Yeah, great question. And I'm going to kick it to the audience because I can't think of a single time <laughs> where we have not overestimated the threat and, uh, of, of the enemy that we have uh, fought. So anybody, anybody want to argue with me? We have tendencies in that direction, I think it's safe to say. Um, let's so go thank, back thank to- Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let's go back- If you wanted to argue, I can, I'm, I agree. <laughs> Take the other side. <laughs> um, let's go back online here. We've got a couple questions about China, Taiwan, and this is, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. for the first time and hopefully the last time in my life, I'll say pacing challenge. It's the pacing oh. challenge. They got just, to you, just, Justin. No, no, I'm joking. Justin. Um, but there is, that, that is driving a lot of the discussion about, you know, we're, we're sort, we've sort of just silently gone away from the idea that terrorism is driving the defense budget in important ways. We haven't said, oh yeah, we were wrong about how to fight terrorism. We were wrong about how dangerous terrorism was. And I think you talk in the book about trying to wind this thing down because it's manageable at a, at a kind of peacetime level of effort. Um, with some small tactical exceptions here and there. Um, but China is really driving the discussion. And so some, I deleted their names, I'm sorry, but people who are critical saying, you know, are we overstating the threat, to use the gentleman's uh, idea, about China in particular, or is China kind of an exception where you say, you know, if you think about the three regions, Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia, um, how do you rank those threats and priorities with a particular eye to China? I know the one thing we will get wrong is we will mispredict the next major conflict. That's the only thing I know, back to your point, or what kind of. Uh, so with China, uh, who was it like, don't ever fight a land war in Asia? Was that MacArthur? That's a uh, no, no, <laughs> that's no, no, was, no, who, or was it Truman? Yeah. Princess Di. Princess Bride, the movie. Yeah, I mean, like, if we ever get in a land war in Asia right. again, shame on us. Right. That would be so astrategic. Hey, could happen. Yeah, so I got to tell you, that Taiwan thing, I'm obviously concerned about it. We all should be concerned about it. Uh, you know, people should not be subjected to totalitarian, authoritarian regimes imposing their will. I think we all can agree on that. We can be realist. We can be whatever you want. But at the end of the day, we don't like bullies. Because uh, we're Americans, and we no offense, we just don't like bullies. I mean, we're just like leave us alone. We're good. 
And then that, that was a crazy thing, like going into, Iraq, going into Iraq, I read this great line about the Vietnam War where they're like, the most dangerous thing is a 17-year-old kid with a rifle and, a, and, and the license to use it. I saw that, I'm like, do not, just don't mess with us. Like, we go berserker. So, but that's, that was a set, I was just like frequency hopping there for a that's moment. Um, you talked about Taiwan, absolutely a threat. I believe will play right into the Chinese hands Remember, everybody, everybody, a lot of people made fun of Reagan with uh, Star Wars and belittled him. And really, some great strategists, some great strategists go, what's our competitive advantage? It's our technology and it's our economic strength. Let's bankrupt the Soviet Union. And that, I think, in start, a lot of those techniques were to goad the Soviets into spending money they didn't have, and I think it worked. Uh, some people are still arguing about whether that's valid. I'm concerned the Chinese are doing the exact same thing to us right now. That they're like, oh yeah, you need, you need to build more $14 billion aircraft carrier groups. Oh, you need to build a lot more F-35s. $1.5 trillion over the life of the program, largest procurement program in the history of the world. I said the world, that includes the Roman road networks in, uh, in Europe. Like, so I think they're goading us, and we're just taking the, well, holy cow, hypersonic missiles. They've got them, and we don't. We've got we to gotta build a whole bunch of hypersonics. I believe with the Chinese threat that the way to approach that is a very subtle and indirect approach. I talked about irregular warfare. I think the tools that we can use to influence, bottom line, dime, diplomacy, information, military, economic. Those are the four tools that we have when we align our strategy, mean, ends, ways, means, let's go ahead and use a little more E, and let's go ahead and use a little more I, and let's go ahead and use a little more D, diplomacy, information, and economics, and let's back off a little on the military for a while, because we have time. If, I, if we're wrong, we can spin things up. That is a good note on which to conclude. One question that came in online is, what is the name of the book? Is it available on Amazon? It's, so, I was about to say citizen secretary, soldier secretary, citizen also, uh, warnings from the battlefield in the Pentagon about America's most dangerous enemies. Thanks it for is, plugging it because I always forget that. And they're like, hey, we're, no, we're plugging I just start talking. Here. I'm like, I'm supposed to, every time I say something I'm supposed to, as I said in my book, <laughs> soldier secretary, and I never do that because I'm just really honored to be here to talk about this. These are really important issues. And you guys had opportunities to be outside today. It's lovely out. Thanks for taking the time to come uh, and I'm, I'm here if you want to like come yell at me after. We're here. We have cheese and wine and beer afterwards, and I'd like to thank all the audience, both in person and online, for attending. Thank you very much. Justin, thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it so much.